How's it going, guys? In this episode, we had the privilege of sitting down with Alex Vaselli, who is the grandson of Viktor Frankl, and we had the opportunity to dive into Man's Search for Meaning. Um, Alex is a documentarian. He's done a ton of work um, in, in, in research on his grandfather and also now uh, essentially carries the torch for, for his grandfather, helping others find their purpose and, and understand the value in logotherapy. Um, so... Uh, in this episode, you'll hear us ask questions about the book, get further insights, uh, and he really paints a, uh, a beautiful picture of man's search for meaning and purpose in the world. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Take care. You know, right now, uh, you know, we're, we're interacting with our audience and, and coaching, and this book was perfect timing for a lot of people to find meaning in this massive change of, of, uh, of their lives and their lifestyle, you know, a different form of captivity, certainly than the prison camps of uh, Auschwitz and what your grandfather went through and what he ultimately survived. But the dots were connected through this book and, and the meaning that he found in, in that captivity and that, uh, that event. So connecting the dots to what's going on today, you know, that'd be kind of an interesting place to start our conversation. Yeah, well, um, I think uh, suffering and any kind of suffering in this situation where we're now uh, suddenly find ourselves limited in so many ways in our lives, uh, that was the central topic that he wrote about all his life, actually before the Holocaust as well. Um, how do we deal with the uh, the changes, the um, difficult situations, the unavoidable sufferings that um, we are confronted with in lives. He actually spoke of uh, the tragic triad, the three things that are unavoidable uh, in life. And those are suffering, suffering that you cannot avoid, of course. Then um, death might be the death of a beloved person or your own death, your own mortality, and guilt, another strong uh, element that pushes us to the brink. So these are the three elements that life simply doesn't come without. It's part of the deal. We all have to, to face it sooner or later. And how do we uh, say yes to life, right, despite the fact that we are confronted with these things. And so in a way, this situation now is not much different. I think it's part of the reason why people have been drawn to this book for, for so many decades now is because they find something in there that instills hope and uh, tells them, you know, your life might be not the way you expected it, but that doesn't mean that it's not meaningful. That's really cool. And so you said you were 19 uh, when you sort of dove into this book for the first time, which I think is, is an incredible thing. So for you, was it a pivot point? You know, um, did you, by taking this, I mean, clearly you took a track of, you know, almost carrying the torch, sharing this incredible message with the world. Um, what was that realization like? Did it impact your meaning or was that a route you were sort of always going down or... How, how did that work? No, I, I was I was actually not too much interested in my grandfather's work when I grew up as a as a child. You know, for me, he was just grandpa, and um, he was such a fun personality that you know there was no need for anything else. I wasn't missing anything. 
But um, I was actually invited, or my sister and I were invited to a logotherapy conference. Logotherapy being the, the name he gave to his approach, which was the first meaning-centered uh, approach to psychotherapy. And so uh, he couldn't travel anymore because he was getting up there in his years and his health was failing. So he sent my sister and, um, and me to kind of represent him. And I thought, you know, being on that airplane to Toronto, I thought, well, now's the time I should kind of know a little bit more about <laughs> what he's, you know, what my grandfather is known for um, in in the world. And so I read Man's Search for Meaning and I, I couldn't put it down. I think I had the same experience that a lot of people have. And what became clear to me was uh, at first I I kind of had to... I've wondered how can it be that same person that I know who was such a um, happy uh, human being who, and, you know, a man who was incredibly funny, who could enjoy the, the littlest things and this, you know, most ridiculous things. And um, how can that be the same man who went through this? And then I realized that it was probably because of that, probably because of this inner richness that he had and the ability to, for example, apply humor in situations where, you know, there's nothing you can do. And, and that, again, is part of his, uh, his approach, his psychotherapeutic approach, how to use humor, which is such an intrinsic human capacity, right, that allows you to put a distance between your, your situation that you find yourself in and, um, and, you know, puts that healthy distance in between that, that situation and yourself. And so it became um, an experience that made me understand him more as a person. That's awesome. And by the way, that came through, uh, I would say, we were talking about this before we came on, like one of the most prominent things about that documentary, Victor and I, um, is that people cherished him for the little things, for being so down to earth, mm -hmm. for being so pragmatic and just just a, someone that lights up a room and it's it's yes. amazing after reading the book to know <clears throat> the hell he went through um that you know to, to to maintain that just love for life um is a really inspiring thing um I, i'm, I I'm glad you say that because i that was really my intention with that film to you know kind of relate to the impression of who was he as a person mm. and i also think it's it's one of the things that um made him such a good therapist um, because people could see, you know, okay, if this guy has made it through this and came back, this is proof that you can go through really, really horrible situations in your life mm -hmm. and recover and, you know, not become uh, mentally uh, affected um, in, a, in a negative way or you don't have to become a bitter person mm. uh, because of that. And, and to add to that, you could actually expand. You can grow from it. It could be your your growth, uh, your opportunity to grow, which I thought was interesting that a lot of the people that he interacted with at the after the war, and, and I don't know if they were necessarily uh, from Auschwitz, but I know he also talked with prisoners of war from Vietnam, that they all, all identified that moment in captivity as a growth experience. Exactly. And it's a very important point that you say that because um, he, I mean, he treated everybody who, who wanted therapy. I mean, his, 
his name was in the phone book. He said, I'm a doctor. I need to be available. A lot of people were surprised when they were calling <laughs> you know, from somewhere in the world, expecting a secretary to pick up the phone, and they had him on the phone. And sometimes he would do therapy over the phone. But um, he always said, um, everyone has their own Auschwitz. So for me, that you know, the concentration camp, the Holocaust, happened to be my lowest point in life, um, my confrontation with the most severe suffering, that in no way takes away uh, anybody else's or can't be compared to somebody else's experience. It's universal. Suffering is suffering, whether it might be uh, internal suffering, something that you're dealing with, a, a mental uh, problem, or, or external circumstances uh, where you are inhibited where you are um, you know in standing in the with your back to the to the wall and the only thing you can choose is the attitude that you adopt in that situation and he proved that and he proved it's possible and um, and actually uh, he actually defined that goal of psychotherapy not to be to make people happy and feel good but to make people able to deal with the tensions and the suffering that they are confronted with in life and not become mentally unstable or sick because of that. Could you maybe elaborate on that? Because we were talking about that before our show uh, a few days ago, actually. There's, there's a line in there about the suffering, right? And you said everyone has uh, their own Auschwitz. It was just a, a, a wow, what a powerful uh, way to put it. Um, you know, in the book, he talks about suffering being a gas, like taking the form of a gas, and it'll, it'll fill up your soul uh, no matter the extent of it. And, and we really didn't know what to make of that. You know, um, we, we all had our different viewpoints from experience, but I, I'd be curious to get your take. Well, that, this is kind of what he, he meant with that, that um, even if you have a small amount of suffering in your life, uh, if this is the first time you're encountering that, it completely fills your system. And it's sort of like that, um, you know, if you open, if there's a little bit of gas in a room, it will... Um, cover the whole room. It will be in every uh, corner. It doesn't matter if it's a little bit of gas or a lot of gas. It's physics. It mm -hmm. fills the whole room evenly. And this is how, how what he used to um, compare suffering with that. If a human being is uh, confronted with suffering and is you know, affected by it, it will affect the whole, the whole system, the, the whole state changes. And so this is this is a universal experience, and um, and he was always looking for ways to um, to to deal with that and to help in that situation. And uh, again, interestingly, I mean, it's 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 a myth that kind of it's a misunderstanding that he kind of came out the of the concentration camps with these insights. No, he had them uh, before that. I mean, he was a student of Sigmund Freud and then of Alfred Adler. And uh, one day he said, I'm, I disagree with uh, my teachers and I actually want to learn from my patients. And he was already a medical doctor. That's all he ever wanted to do. He wanted to be a, a doctor. And he started observing and looking at what are not the things that make us mentally unstable, not the things that make us sick, but what are the factors that come into play where people are confronted with very, very severe illnesses and difficult situations 
and and yet they they are not mentally unstable yet they sometimes even become more uh human or become the best version of themselves and they're very resilient what is the difference and he identified that factor um which was which was meaning we thought at the time that his his beliefs must have been a little controversial in the 50s i would think Oh, well, definitely. Yeah. He was a disruptor. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but he took that on. He, he didn't, he wasn't easily uh, frightened on the contrary. And he kind of, he knew that he had something to say and that he had come across uh, something. I mean, this element of meaning, it's not new. You will find it everywhere in, in music in poetry and literature. It's always been around. Uh, and for some reason it was just overlooked um, by those first fathers of, of the psychotherapeutic schools that were emerging at the turn of the, the beginning of the 20th century. And, uh, and you know, they were, they were doing their thing. They were looking at, you know, where can we find, uh, you know, the origins of a neurosis, of a, you know, disease, of any kind of uh, illness, and find those. And then by understanding the mechanisms, we, we kind of already solved the problem. Um, and that, you know, there's a lot of uh, to be said about that, and it it, it works um, definitely. Uh, it's it's uh, Freud opened the door to this field of even looking at you know the mind and the conscious and the subconscious, and um, that was an incredible pioneering work. But even Freud himself mentioned that he was very well aware that he was only looking at one aspect of the human being. So the problem was not that Freud was wrong necessarily, but that he generalized, or maybe the, the Freudians, uh, his followers, as it so often happens, the generalization, this nothing but, and that's where you always see the kind of reductionism that's so contrary to looking at the human being as more than the sum of his parts, right? Nothing but we're all nothing but drives and instincts that are, you know, rejected and and put into the subconscious so we don't notice them, but then they're gonna hit us uh, in the back. Uh, and then along came Adler and uh, a disciple of Freud, and he said, no, the central motivation is uh, is power. Freud was, you know, loved the pleasure principle, so we're just striving for for um, pleasure adler said no it's power and then along came my grandfather and said i don't think it's either pleasure or power because these are all things within us these are just changes of states why would we be interested in that only a neurotic is so focused on what's going on inside and uh what are my states like the healthy human being he said is looking at the world it's looking at things that uh tasks and other people and values that are out there in the world and trying to interact with the world, not abreact like Freud suggested, not react like you'll find in many psychotherapeutic um, schools mm -hmm. even today, but to act, to act into the world and to be connected, connected with things that are important, connected with people and to interact with that world to make a difference and not to be overly concerned with the effect that it has on oneself, whether it creates power or pleasure mm -hmm. or the feeling to be important, all these subjective meanings, but to actually do something in the world and make a difference. Wow. So, I mean, that, that, I mean, that comes through throughout the entire book. And he mentions <coughs> Freud and he mentions Adler. And, you know, to kind of piggyback on that, another person he talks about pretty consistently is Nietzsche. 
Um, and you know the, the, the famous quote, he who has a why can overcome any how. Um, do, you, do you see Nietzsche's presence uh, come up consistently in the work? I mean, it seems to be such a pivotal piece of um, you know, Victor's message. Uh, well, a lot of things. I mean, he he drew a lot from the philosophers that had come before, and Nietzsche was one of them. But Max Scheler also, I would say, even more so than than Nietzsche. Um, he he saw that there were answers to be found in philosophy that psychology at the time were simply not covering. They were ignoring that. Uh, they were reducing the human being to just a bundle of, as I mentioned, drives or instincts or behavior patterns that, you know, uh, kind of see the human being like a machine, like a computer that just needs to be reprogrammed. And again, a lot of that is true. I mean, a lot of, we have habits and, and things that, you know, make us similar to machines, but we're always more than that. And this is where it's actually interesting, where it becomes interesting, where we're more than machines, we're more than animals, and where we have the ability to freely choose our path, uh, the stand we take towards the maybe the um, things that we've been in the, the character traits or the, you know or the genes and all that that we have the things that we can change, but we always have the freedom to to change that and to decide from one moment to the next who we want to be. And um, so the the famous quote: uh, "He who has a why to live can bear." almost anyhow, kind of sums up one of the central points that there will always be the question of why. Why would I want to change? Why would I want to be a different person today than I was yesterday? And if there's no good reason, then usually uh, the change doesn't doesn't take hold. It will maybe, you know, kind of be a half half uh, weak decision. That, you know, I'm I'm, I'm always thinking of you know, New Year's resolutions, right? right. I'm gonna, I don't know. I'm not gonna eat any more uh, sweets or something. And you know, how long are you gonna do that? You know, maybe <laughs> a day, a week, maybe a month, right? <laughs> and then you're gonna fall back into your old patterns. And usually, it's not because you don't know better uh but the question just becomes well why why would i want to you know not have the things that i like if i want them when i want them is there a good enough reason um if you like i i, I love that one example um you know i had to study logotherapy just like anybody else i had a great teacher um her name was elizabeth lucas she was one of the first generation logotherapists and she had a um patient who was a smoker and he had tried everything to quit smoking right and nothing had helped and he said i'm giving this one more try and uh, so what can you tell me and she asked him okay well why do you want to stop smoking and he said all the usual things i want to be healthier okay you know i want to uh, live longer i don't want to have that cough it's a lot of money it's a waste of money and and all these things and she just kept asking because none of these reasons and she knew that very well none of these reasons were would would carry none of these reasons um would be would would last long enough when you know the 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 need overcomes you and finally um he said something and he mentioned that he had a little daughter and he said, well, if she sees that I'm smoking, then maybe one day she'll become a smoker too. And I'm a bad example and I don't want to, her to follow in my footsteps. 
and that's where she right. that's where she um, launched into action and said, "Okay, well, do you have a pack of cigarettes with you? Yeah, do you have a picture of your daughter in in your wallet?" Maybe he said, "Yeah, of course." So he, she said, "Hand them over to me," and he did. And she took a stapler and she stapled that picture oh, wow. of this man's daughter onto that pack of cigarettes and gave it back to him. And that was the therapy. And he left and he came back a year later and he pulled out the pack of cigarettes. And he said, every time I had the urge to light up a cigarette, I saw the reason why I wanted to stop doing that. And so you see the goals, the quality of the goals, uh, they matter. And um, this is maybe the most important things of to have a strong why. Why do I want to act differently? Why do I want to change? And what makes a strong goal? A strong goal takes notice of the fact that people are not just there to exist and to work on their inner states and to be happy and all this stuff that we're hearing day after day from you know all these wellness gurus and books mm. and self-help uh, uh, you know literature no a healthy human being is actually not so much concerned with themselves but they are they are looking they're oriented beyond themselves onto people or things that matter and for this man, his daughter mattered, and it mattered more than his own health and his own and, and the money he would waste on, waste on cigarettes, right? So here he saw, with this small, this little intervention here, he saw the, the reason why he wanted to change, and, and it worked. So this is a lot of the therapy. This is a lot of the, the work, actually, of, uh, of a logotherapist and the work that my grandfather was did was just help people realize, you know, what are your goals? Where do you want to go in life? Is that worth it? And is that a good goal? Will it make a difference, not just for you, but will it make a difference in the world? What are you there for? What will the world have from you? And what will remain once you're gone? So it's it's really much more common sense than uh, than than one might think. Interesting, you know, <clears throat> you know, take a modern a modern problem. You know, I think it, the root problem here, I think in the states at least, it's pretty prevalent. I think it's the worldwide issue is um, depression, anxiety, uh, which is always the the prequel to addiction, right? To and he had mentioned addiction in the book, you know, from the from a long time ago that that that's been around a long time. And what I haven't found, and I've studied addiction all over the world, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Germany, France, but I never heard of logotherapy, which, you know, my connection to my transformation was that I wanted to. I wanted to have a meaningful use of this second chance I had. So I wanted to do that so my kids wouldn't have the memory of someone that drank himself to death. They'd have the memory of someone that came back and stood up and, and came back. And the addiction industry wants to rehabilitate you. They want to restore you back to whatever that was that had those issues, I guess. And logotherapy seems like you, you're going to be, you know, my, my, my distinction is like recreate yourself, bring something new into existence. Yes. action through action you know exactly transformation exactly. and is that i'm wondering why it's not a prevalent therapy in the states for addiction because it's not 
Yeah, well, it's becoming. It's yeah. it's starting. There's a wonderful uh, group in Chicago. Um, it's called the Above and Beyond Family Center, and they're applying uh, logotherapy, you know, and and a whole mix of of other. Um, therapies that that work with addiction, but logotherapy is at the heart of it. And they had such a sensational, I think they opened three or four years ago, and they had such a success in not just getting people to, um, you know, off off alcohol and off the streets uh, in many cases, but but keep them there because they're better off than before. Uh, you, you don't just bring somebody back, you know, to to the state, as you say, to where they were before, because the I mean we're always we're always confronted with um, the um, uh, temptation, right, mm -hmm. of of kind of falling back into own um, into old patterns. So in order to make a difference, you you want to have find something more, something better. And I mean, your example is a beautiful example of, of that. And I congratulate you because it's one thing to uh, realize that. And then, and then, but you also have to walk the walk mm -hmm. and, and, and you did that. And this is, this is the po most powerful, all of the mechanistic um, approaches that kind of, you know, work on the habit level uh, or, or, um, you know, going back to understanding why are you uh, acting the way you are, um, you know, what happened in your childhood. All that's good. And you might even get to a point where you understand it. But then what? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do between now and death? You know, how does that affect it? And do you always have to understand everything in order to to change it? And, and my grandfather would say, no, not necessarily. Sometimes understanding it and spending a lot of time understanding you know, the kind of the root cause of your problems makes matters even worse because you, there is such a thing as re-traumatization. There is such a thing as uh, taking away hope from people by telling them, okay, you know, it's not your fault. It was your mom and dad. It was society, right? Yeah. And yeah. now you're the product of that, the product of environment or all those influences. And you don't have to say in this whole spiel anyway. You have to just accept that. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, this can be horrible and detrimental to people um, who kind of accept that. And, and, I mean, of course, it's, a, it's an attempt to help, but it really makes matters worse because, again, it doesn't recognize the, um, the a whole dimension that's part of the human experience, and that is the dimension of, um, of free will. My grandfather called it the noetic dimension, mm. you know, kind of on top of the, the physical dimension, the psychological dimension. This is usually where it ends, but he said there's a third one, and this is where we have the ability to choose, to choose uh, our attitude, to make choices despite all our influences that we've uh, been given and where we can where true healing takes place i have one quick addition to that thought because um, you talked about like environment like we're a product of our environment and it's for you know one of the th therapies and pretty popular in addictions 12 steps and they call it, they say you have a disease you're an addict and there's no cure that's like the three cornerstones and the one and only way like you, to your earlier point anything but you know, it's one and only way to find sobriety is that. Do you think, my question is that, I mean, I consider that a label. That's a label I didn't enjoy. So I didn't participate, right? It's like this recession. I'm choosing not to participate in it because I'm going to make better meaning of this of this time. <laughs> yeah. 
with when you give yourself an identity like in therapy in this type of therapy a, a reputation to live up to type is that the distinction between is that the type of of thing that you would give to the, the smokers like i'm not a i'm not i no longer i'm not a smoker instead of i don't smoke anymore or i'm quitting well, this actually reminds me of uh, of Milton H. Erickson, the great, um, some call him the Sigmund Freud of America's Sigmund Freud, right? <laughs> who said, "I don't, I don't uh, give labels because the psychotherapist doesn't have the luxury to come up with a to to, to kind of put that label um, one size fits all on everybody." Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, he would refuse to tell somebody, "Okay, well, you're you are depressed." Right. Um, even such a common label like that, he would say, oh, you're suffering from anger against yourself. You know, <laughs> because there are a million different ways and reasons how people, you know, uh, how depressions look and where the origins are. And um, and you're, you're exactly right. This kind of attempts, the labeling, is uh, also taking away the focus from, okay, who's, who's responsible? Where does my responsibility uh, end? Nobody dismisses the fact that for example, in alcoholism, there there can be genetic genetic factors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, behavior pattern factors. All that's true, but again, the generalization. This oh, it's all it's not my fault. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a disease, and I was hit by that, and I have nothing to add to that. That's simply not true. Um, and human beings are always good for for surprises, right? So you'll find the person who has. The this disease and and yet says um, for because I choose so I will not touch any more alcohol. That's fantastic. That's awesome. And so let's say you. Oh, were you gonna? No, go I'm just. It's just the labeling. Oh, is, it's can, per- can I add set. something? Something yes, to that because we're talking about philosophy. Uh, there was another um, great philosopher, uh, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, and um, he once said, "If you take man." Man of being human, of course. Uh, if you take man as he is, you make him worse. If you take man as he should be, you help him become who he can really be. And this was another quote that my grandfather um, embraced. And uh, again, it's so it's so typical for um, what he what he stood for and what he tried to the point that he tried to convey um, with these labels. You in a, an, in you can't avoid to uh, kind of put that label on that person and, and that person will, will feel it. Okay. Now I'm, now I'm an alcoholic. Mm. Uh, You know, now I'm seen as, as something that doesn't take into account my uh, free will and the choices that I can make. Uh, It's a participatory universe. You know, we, we know in education, if you tell Jimmy, he's a, you know, don't be a brat, you make sure he will act like a brat, mm-hmm. right? Because you put that out there. Mm-hmm. So if you label someone, okay, you're depressed, you're an alcoholic, this can this can easily um, backfire because you have to look at the individual mm-hmm. and to take the human being um, at their best. Why always look at the worst? Why always look at, you know, the, the, the depths and, and the parts that are not functioning? Why not turn the focus on what's functioning? Um, and this again in logotherapy, that's that's all we do. Is okay. Well, here are the things you can't change. Like here's your past, right? Okay. Well, here's your future, and here are the things that you can do. Aren't they equally important? Shouldn't we look at those as well, hmm. right? 
we're, we're all, we're light and shadow, such is life, right? And to help the person become who we expect that they can be, mm. this is so helpful in therapy and people will, will feel it. If you expect the worst, if you treat someone like a potential uh, criminal, right? It's a whole different thing. And if you, if you let that person feel, okay, there's good and bad in you, but I believe that you are able and you're much more uh, in charge and capable of being the agent of your own decisions and your own um, health interventions uh, than, than you even know. Can we, and that can, already oh, has a therapeutic effect. Can we take that idea real quick? Because um, this comes up a lot. So the idea of, you know, as you should be, not as you were, you know, removing yourself from that label. Uh, but then there becomes the question of, you know, not having the answers, which you alluded to. And, and you know, Victor talks about in the book, you know, the, the movie, like individual movie scenes where sometimes they don't really make sense until you get the one at the end. Um, and so I, I guess my question is, what would your coaching be or how would you advise someone that says look I, I, maybe I understand how I should be but I don't I don't know what the answers look like I feel like I'm stepping out into abyss the unknown is definitionally you know not certain um, what are your your thoughts on that well my, my grandfather was very had a very clear definition of of meaning um, it's not something that's created it's not something that's given that will be the biggest mistake if <laughs> the therapist you know tells you what to do but it's a search and that's even the title of the book right man's search for meaning um the search in itself is already a, a meaningful task so if you don't know then to accept that and say well just because i don't know it right now doesn't mean i should give up looking for meaning and uh and and uh maybe have the patience to eventually uh, find out what what I'll make the topic of my life, what the meaning is that I, I give to my life or that I find in my life and then go out to to actualize. So um, it's 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 actually it's remarkable because uh, I mean he would look at things like like boredom that everybody else would say, okay, well boredom is definitely a negative thing, it's a bad thing. But it's in, but he would say no, boredom is a highly meaningful thing because it's your it's your spirit, it's your mind telling you you are letting potential meaning offerings, offerings, you let them go by and you're wasting your life and you should do something about it. So there's, it's highly meaningful that you're not feeling good right now because what you're doing is you're, you're wasting your time. So start looking. And most of the time, it's not um, the fact that, um, you know, people are questioning the mean, does my life have a meaning or not? Uh, Freud, by the way, again, um, he said, if a person asks, does my life have a meaning or not, if a person doubts the meaningfulness of his or her life, that's already a symptom. That means that person is not well. Now, my grandfather said, on the contrary, if a person asks this question, does my life have a meaning or not, this is not just uh, no sign of an illness, but this is a sign of maturity because only a human being even asks the question, can even ask the question, what what am I here for? It's an existential question. So it's a sign of maturity. You're you're in the same group with uh, with all philosophers who ever lived, right? Mm. 
Um, and so this is not this is something you can actually be proud of in a way. And you know, a lot of times even that helped people to to have that insight and not to be called crazy just because they have these doubts. The doubts are part of the human existence, always have been. Not finding an answer and not finding an answer for a long, long time, that can become the problem if you stop looking or if you kind of resort to the lower um, aims of saying, okay, well, I don't know what the meaning of my life is, so at least I want to have a comfortable life, an easy life, you know, or I'll, I'll just go um, for prestige or uh, or what or distraction, you know, all kinds of extreme behaviors. Um, and again, it can be a, a beginning of an addiction. Um, this this is kind of running away from this deep existential question that remains unanswered and that becomes this lingering void. He would call it, you know, it's an, it's like a an abyss. He mm -hmm. called it the existential vacuum. And you find that uh, not just in in situations where people are in confronted with a crisis. On the contrary, this this also becomes sometimes even more uh, predominant when people are well off, because having everything to live from does not address the answer, does not address the question, what do we live for? So you might have all the comforts in the world and for any dog that might be enough, <laughs> but for the human being, that's where the trouble begins, because then they say, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with all this free time and all this money and all these possibilities that I have? The concept of boredom is incredible because um, you talk about, um, you know, opportunity. And there's an accounting principle I learned years ago that changed, kind of transformed my, my business life is that the lost opportunity cost is the, the return that you can get on doing something other than what you're doing. <laughs> and you know, in yeah. life, there's a lost life's lost opportunity cost. If you're if you're bored and your brain is telling you, I guess it's telling you there's more here, right? Yeah. And you're, you're you know you're lost a lot of, of the past. You could be losing the present, and the future is the biggest number. It always is, and no one accounts for that. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's always looking backwards <laughs> on what's went wrong instead of you know what 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 can we do now? Action. I love it. Yeah. Uh, great point. Yeah, it's like it's like you're driving a car, right? If you always look in the back mirror, you're not going to, you know, you're going right. to run into the ditch. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Do we have any questions? Uh, I think well, we hit them all. Yeah, we hit most of the questions. I had, we had a question of anything else you're working on? I think you mentioned another book or another documentary possibly. Is there anything you're working on? Oh, you know, there's there are so many things. <laughs> Only 24 hours in the day. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually working on a project um, – which is going to be very interesting. It's going to address the um, problems of suicide, which is, we know, skyrocketed in, in the U.S., especially among the youth. Something that's very little known is that my grandfather worked in suicide prevention in the 1920s. And he actually brought the suicide rate among, um, you know, teenage students. Uh, he brought down to zero in 1930. Um, because you know he was he was uh, one of the first people to actually talk about meaning and to talk you know with these young people in a way that nobody else did, mm. and um, and it's so sad. You I mean it doesn't mean that every suicide could be prevented, um, or that every suicide happens because of a lack of meaning, but every suicide might well be prevented if there had been some perspective of meaning, um, you know, in. in 
in reach or graspable to that person. And so we're trying to uh, develop a, a series that will address um, those issues and um, talk about this um, and try to make a little bit of a difference there. I heard uh, last year more people died from suicide than terror, war, and crime combined worldwide. Yeah. It's, a, it's, uh, it's an issue. epidemic. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, you, you can attribute a lot to disease. I mean, every reason for suicides there is as individual as, as there are people in this world. But um, ultimately, it's still, you, again, you cannot take away that element of, of choice. Um, and so ultimately, a, a suicide also is a no to the question, does my life have a meaning or not? Wow. And this is where, where you can do a lot of uh, work and where you can make a difference in those situations where people see no other um, uh, possibility mm. to kind of open up the view mm. a little bit and see, okay, what would it be worth for to even just remain a little longer and see what happens and maybe your life will take a better turn. Wow. Oh, yeah. What an honorable, honorable path. Well, we want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're over overseas, so it's probably seven or eight hours ahead of us. But uh, thanks for this time and looking forward to uh, following your work. It's just fantastic. Yeah, Alex, this is really, really powerful yeah. stuff, and it's going to impact a lot of people. So we, we appreciate you taking the time to, to share that with them. It means a lot. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.